0: There are certain events in history that are paradigm-shifting for millions of people, sending many spiraling into despair and many others resolving to move forward in hope. And of course, there can be significant overlap between those two groups. Such events often inspire great works of art, embodying that tension, even if they don't point to a way out of it. The beauty is in the meditation on the brokenness. Welcome to Cinema Credo, conversations on film and faith. I'm Adam Glass.
1: for me and for me So my name is Catherine Schmidt. I am an assistant professor of theology and religious studies at Malloy College in Long Island, New York. Um, My personal religious background is that I've been a a lifelong Catholic, and it's really difficult to sort of divorce my personal faith, I think, from my academic work, given that I do confessional theology, meaning that... My work comes from a place of um, a particular faith, which would be Catholic. Um, In terms of the movie, I picked one of my absolute favorite movies, not only to watch but also to teach, which is a movie called Calvary from 2014.
0: So you do use this to teach?
1: I do, Uh, yeah.
0: You you show college students Calvary, and after they're done crying, (laughs) uh, you talk about it?
1: Yeah, so I... I've used it only a couple times the The time that I used it most uh, sort of intentionally, I would say, was a, a course called Religion and Film. and I had a unit uh, in that course. That was about depictions of religion because there's all different ways that you can approach as you know um the relationship between religion and film and so in the unit on depictions of religion i had a depiction of islam a depiction of judaism and then i had a, this is the depiction one of the depictions of uh christianity um which was specifically catholicism
0: that is very interesting yeah <laughs> uh, i would i would i would love to see your syllabus for that class sure
1: happy to send it uh, Yeah. It's a little dated at this point. It was, that was 2015, 2014. So the Calvary had actually just come out and it kind of snuck its way onto the syllabus. I I began that course with the movie Saved.
0: Excellent. Yeah. (laughs) choice as well. Uh, Something I'm sure we'll end up talking about on this podcast at some point.
1: Uh,
0: Yeah, no, that's that's very interesting uh, as a course study. Obviously, uh, one of the points of... Cinema Credo is to talk to people about religious movies in the terms they want to talk about it, Absolutely, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's not any movie can be a religious movie if you have a religious experience with that movie. True. And that's that's the point of the podcast. And in that regard, we've only watched a few movies that I would, on first blush, consider explicitly religious. Uh, Calvary is obviously one of them. Yeah. But the idea that you you do a course on religious... And film, and I, I definitely want to see that syllabus.
1: Um, Absolutely.
0: <laughs> I had no, I, I didn't know you were doing that, but I did know that you are. Uh, what was the term you used in that interview last year? A uh, digital theologian.
1: Yeah. So I, um, I resisted that term for quite a while. It's a term that people who do the same work I do had been using, and then also people who didn't really know what to do with me. Um, in my work had used it to sort of apply to me. I have embraced it recently because I'm part of something called the global network for digital theology. And, you know, just as part of that network, I've sort of started to use it a little bit more, but basically what it means is that I am a traditional, um, systematic theologian, which means I'm interested in sort of the more philosophical side of, of theology, um, I'm a systematic theology systematic theologian that cares about digital culture, um, and for me, in particular, I care about uh, or I, I research and look at um, the the notion of virtual spaces uh, or the idea of virtual reality, mostly from a sort of social media uh, perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. So, virtual reality here would mean any any virtual space, not just what we might conceive of as VR
1: exactly so yeah. I've tried to in my own um in my own work try to expand the, the notion of virtual space beyond right these issues of VR to all sorts of mediation that are really important to religious uh, communities so mm-hmm. architecture art even music um sense these kinds of things um as virtual virtual reality so it's it's actually brings me into a lot of really interesting fields of study like museum studies and architecture studies and um, like memorials and things like that. So huh,
0: that's that's interesting. When we were talking about what film you might want to do, you had you had picked this as the more ecclesiology <laughs> ecclesiological uh, film on the list, uh, but but it sounds like uh, you sound like you're. Uh, you deal in a classical definition of uh, ecclesiology, too, of, of actual space, uh, mm. not just the the church invisible, but physically. Yeah,
1: yeah exactly. Well, and, and the thing is that this is this sort of demonstrates my um, my confessional background. Right. So so Catholicism for Catholicism, the physical spaces and the sort of sensory experience of the tradition is not divorced from the from the um from the invisible right sort of the church universal um yeah. so catholics with all of our sort of bells and whistles and smells and things like that um mm-hmm. though that is a that's theologically weighted for us it's not sort of incidental to yeah. the rest of it
0: no, that's very that's very interesting to me too. Uh, actually, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to you, but but an interesting point on this conversation. Uh, the uh, very first episode of this podcast was with a friend of mine named uh, Thomas Stamma, Athanasios' uh, brother, Athanasios. In fact, uh, he was a Greek Orthodox monk for many years, and uh, through the course of his uh, journey, uh, has ended up in a uh, group called the Community of the Gospel, which is an Episcopalian uh, general term for a monk group.
1: <laughs> <laughs> is it a monastery?
0: It is not a monastery per se.
1: Community. Uh, it is community. a
0: community yeah. uh, in—they uh, only meet in person
1: mm-hmm.
0: once a month. Mm-hmm. They are mm-hmm. a community that utilizes the Internet as their mm-hmm. primary form mm-hmm. of community. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are a, uh, a church-recognized order. Interesting. So to speak, uh, uh, which is very interesting in the work that you do. Absolutely. You know, and certainly some of the uh, even o- outside of religious functions, some of my most dearly held communities in my life have been Internet oriented.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so my my intention about my intention in trying to understand the Internet and, and digital spaces as on a continuum with the rest of these sort of forms of mediation that have been specifically in the Christian tradition um, is to try to make sense of what someone like your friend is doing right so is there there are ways in which what they're doing is very new but there are also ways in which what they're doing is is has a sort of right. continuity with um, with with forms of community um, in the ancient and medieval world right. so
0: it's still about connection so right. It's always been about connection right between each other and to God absolutely well Calvary yeah uh, this is a, a film that uh, doesn't utilize a lot of technology in their daily lives. Uh, So I suppose we bounce back a little bit though, though the few, uh, the, the one sort of instance that came to mind thinking about, you know, watching that movie and thinking about your work, uh, obviously you didn't, you, you didn't choose to watch this movie in regard to, to your work necessarily. Right. Uh, but, uh, but it was interesting how I think one of the most important conversations of the film takes place over the telephone. Mm -hmm. Uh, when Father James is talking to his daughter who's Mm -hmm. gone back to Dublin Mm -hmm. and uh, he talks about uh, forgiveness uh, and virtue being more important. Yeah. uh, Something that we don't talk about as much, he says. Uh, And then uh, there is still the disconnect of the glass, but in the final scenes of her entering the prison to talk to Jack. Right. uh, Who has murdered her father. Right. uh, The only connection is... Is through that glass divide something a disconnect? It is mm-hmm. not personal
1: mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. in the
0: same way, uh, even though they are so close. Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond that, everything, every conversation in the movie is very personal and very intimate, and doesn't doesn't really contain more than uh, more than a couple of people at a time.
1: It's interesting that you say that, though, because I as I was watching it again. I mean, I've seen this movie probably I would say maybe maybe ten times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I was struck this time just in reference to the scene that you're talking about at the end with the, with the jail cell or the, the jail visit. Mm-hmm. I was struck by the sort of book ending of, and maybe, maybe I just don't remember having this thought, but you know, the scene, the movie opens with the confessional. Oh yeah. And then this is a sort of pseudo confessional at the end. Right. Um, and in a sense the confessional and the uh the jail visit room i don't know what you would call it right the 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 glass those are the two most intimate conversations in the whole film i mean even though the end the end of the film there is really no conversation we don't we don't we're not privy to it but we can kind of maybe expect and we can maybe talk about what we think is going to happen but even though there are screens, even though there are, are glass and then the actual screen of the confessional, those are the two most intimate conversations, right? Right. Um, and even even between James, Father James and Fiona, his daughter, I, yeah, you're right. The phone conversation is, is very intimate. It's when they forgive one another, but um, they actually have a conversation in a confessional as well. Um, Indeed. That's really intimate. So, yeah, it's it, the I, I'm just there's so many amazing moments like that in this movie. I just think this is one of the most overlooked films, like probably in like in the 21st century, like it's such a good film for just precisely this, you know, I mean, we're talking about only two scenes so far, you know?
0: Right. It's, uh, it's interesting in its place. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the reasons this film exists is that, um, the filmmakers, uh, John Michael McDonough McDonough, uh, is the director and writer here, uh, and Brandon Gleason, the star who was in his previous film as well, they were talking, they wanted to do a film dealing with uh, the aftermath Mm -hmm. of the uh, ongoing the child abuse scandals within the church. Uh, And uh, they figured everybody everybody was making a bad priest movie Mm. in 2014. So they were going to make a film about a good priest. Mm -hmm. And then they made their film, and it was a few years down the line before anyone made a movie about a bad priest, actually.
1: Right, right.
0: It's still something no one talked about for a while. Yeah. Uh, Whereas they just assumed that everyone would be talking about it because obviously everyone had to be talking about it, and then no one did
1: well and uh-huh. and the way in which they are able to weave the financial crisis into yeah. that as well is i mean it's really really ahead of its time in terms of the 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 kind of pushing these two systems of sin into the same um film in a way that right. makes sense you know and it's through because they write such good characters when you write good people, good characters, you can bring things like that together right. in a way that's, mm-hmm. I think, more organic and and um, doesn't feel like such a... Because there's a way in which these movies can become very heavy-handed um, right. and very predictable, right? Um, and I think that Calvary is... Along with Doubt, actually, um, yeah. a really good example of, of dealing really delicately with something that I think usually takes decades to get to, to a point that you have enough, I think, artistic vision to do it well. These, these filmmakers were able to do it pretty early on, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. I forgot that Doubt was so early, too. That was 2008, wasn't
1: yeah, it? Yeah, it's an early... I mean, it really yeah. is right up against... I mean, in terms of taking a long view of history, you yeah. know, Um yeah
0: yeah yeah um and maybe that's why they thought they thought everyone would be on the doubt bandwagon maybe as, yeah so to speak yeah. um but yeah they've they've madonna's crafted a a very good movie here mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, um you know like you said it's it's it could have been v- much more predictable than it is um one thing that really helps with its uh unpredictability is the fact that it's uh got everyone, every Irish actor you might know by name
1: uh, in it. <laughs> right, um, yeah, that's there's true. No,
0: there's no picking who's, who's obviously the bad guy because right. he's the only one he recognized. Right. Um,
1: but, <laughs> <laughs> that's so true.
0: Yeah, uh, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's just it's a, it's a, a well-crafted world. piece of art. Mm-hmm. Um, McDonough, interestingly enough, uh, claims he was not trying to say anything broader metaphorically. About the situation Yeah I see the face you're making And uh, <laughs> that's That's basically There's I think Socrates might have said it first About artists not understanding their own art Right uh, And the uh, the death of the author Gets there too and sometimes the author needs to die Because their interpretation stands in the way Of what it,
1: <laughs> what uh, yeah. it could
0: possibly be saying
1: That's true <laughs> You know I think in this one Again because of how many times I've seen it yeah these these characters are so clearly metaphorical um (laughs) and some of the conversations are metaphorical but again i think that the the strength of the film is that they focused on writing good characters who said things that people have heard right so it's not they don't become caricatures they're actually can are they're actually believable real people um so yeah, I you know I think sometimes I think sometimes artists don't want to be pinned down to any one given one interpretation. Excuse me. Right. So they so they they say that they don't have a. I mean I think the Coen Brothers are are the most famous example of this, of right? Where they don't want to say, oh yeah, it means this. Um, uh, yeah, and that there's a such there's such a richness to this film. I think that one of the things I love about it is that. It's one of the few films that I believe the story and the strength of its writing matches the visual, um, oh, yeah. matches the production value of it. You know, it's just so visually stunning and rich yeah. that um, as as desperate and as hard as it is to watch, it's just a. it's almost like cinematic candy sometimes, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, you know, and from a film craft standpoint, you mm-hmm. know, you've already talked about the, the parallelism, the bookends of the film, mm-hmm. uh, the confessionalists, and the telephone conversations. I also love the end credits where we get uh, empty shots, no people in them, but empty shots of everywhere where uh, James and Fiona had had mm. an important conversation mm-hmm. uh, and the emptiness of that now. Because right. it's also a meditation on loss. Of mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. so many different people of having experienced loss or facing loss, uh, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. I and I think that I I I was trying to think a little bit more about the landscape. I've been to that. I've been to Sligo, uh, where the where the film is set. Um, and you know Ireland is. I, I lived in Ireland for a bit, and it has a you know I have a place in my heart for Ireland. But it's it, it's at once this sort of vast. Place, You know, when you're in these amazing landscapes and those shots of, of Sligo and, and the west, just sort of the west of Ireland, it seems very really vast, but it's actually a very small place. Like, it's a very small country. It has a very small town feel. Even Dublin feels like a small town. And on mm-hmm. the west coast, it's even smaller, you know, in terms of the population. And so I was really... I'm, I'm really interested in that dynamic of... Again, from a sort of ecclesiological perspective, I'm interested in the dynamic between the universal and the particular, the sort of large and the small, you know. Um, yeah. And I think that that's why, and and even just sort of those, I mean, those uh, wide shots, you know, um, with Jack, you know, as he's walking towards James at the end, you know, there's just wide shot of him, and um, so there's just sort of the largeness and smallness thing is really, and I, I, uh, what I'm, what I'm, what made me think of that was when you said something about kind of loss, you know, that, you know, if, if religious communities are about connection, when you, these sort of senses of, of betrayal and senses of loss and hurt, um, kind of, I don't know, at once you you sort of remember that you're part of something larger, which is good, but then you can also feel like you're sort of drowning under the weight of something that's just way too big, you know, um, I don't know if any of that
0: makes sense, but I'm. Oh, it it certainly makes sense. Um, I'm interested in that idea. In what uh, you know, another thing this movie is sort of showing is that the church is somewhat impotent mm-hmm. for this community, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that that impotency has. Uh, has shattered the community in many ways too yeah um, everyone <laughs> at least fifty percent of the named characters in this movie are thinking about committing suicide or have already Correct. attempted.
1: I know that's stunning, right I mean it's really yeah. uh the the sense of despair um yeah. is is deep i mean even James I think has that a sense of despair
0: right um, right and that despair is easy to fall into, uh, you know, uh, as easy today as it was a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, so much of what we're talking about all so far reminds me of, uh, you know, the, the rise of modernism around world war one, ideologically, uh, you know, the rejection of old hierarchies of, of the old social order. Uh, and, you know, that's, it's an earned cynicism when you see those social orders uh, failing, mm-hmm. uh, failing yeah, like, to provide what they claim to, be, to be, be is their only reason to exist. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. And there's that, there's that interesting scene. I mean, this is what I was saying about the weaving of the sort of failure of the church with the economic, the sins yeah. of the church with the economic sins with that, that scene where James is going into the bar and Brendan, the bar owner says, um, or he says, oh, you've gotten good use out of your library card. And he says, the library closed. And he almost is, in a sense, like blaming the priest that the library has closed. Right. Right. So there's like this, like you're saying, I mean, there's a sort of distrust of, um, or the sort of collapse of all of these um, systems in which people have put their faith, you know, um, systems right. on which people have had to rely uh, for knowledge and for, uh, for, for life, right?
0: Right. And James is right when he talks to uh Dylan Morin's character, the the billionaire.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh where where uh the billionaire, you know, says, "Look at look at all the resources the church has." And mm-hmm. and James says, "That's not me." Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And look at the look at the church he's in. It's a it's a wooden framed uh could be a garage on first blush.
1: Yep. Uh, yep.
0: And it uh pretty easily burns down too uh but uh (laughs) so it's it's i think you know you lived in ireland Mm -hmm. uh but there's a sort of perspective from from where i sit that uh as the church and state are tied a little more in people's consciousness within ireland
1: Mm -hmm. uh, Absolutely. absolutely
0: yeah so in a way the church having more resources uh from a from an outsider, religiously outsider per, uh, view, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. our our Buddhist bartender might have, right? <laughs> uh, the church having more resources, perhaps they are to blame for mm-hmm. the bri- library not having as many resources.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. That's true, and I. That's another good point. You know, when I, I was watching it uh, recently, you know, for this, I was, I was conscious of differences about watching it as an American versus an Irish person, you know, like there have to be things that they pick up on as Irish that we're just never going to, we're never going to pick up on. Um, One of the things that stands out to me is that, you know, you hear the voice of the, of the murderer in the first, it's the first part of the film. And because the accent, I think overwhelms the film for Americans, it's probably clearer to an Irish listener, an Irish viewer who the murderer is going to be because they can probably hear differences in the accents. Right.
0: Right. Whereas an American,
1: as an American, I'm just sort of like, Oh, well they're Irish men and they all sound the same, you know? I mean, I, it's like, I'm sure that there's an extra level of, um, I don't know, sort of insider knowledge that, that Irish, Irish audiences can, can kind of latch on to. I
0: think, uh, I think they do. Uh, have a little bit of uh, voice disguising going on mm-hmm. in that first scene too. Yeah, he's think talking. So? He's talking a little deeper than he does in the rest of the film.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, trying to disguise his voice, but uh, but yes, that's also true. That uh, you know, you'd probably, if you were more uh, intimately familiar with the accent, you might be able to uh, yeah. figure things out yeah, long absolutely. before. And that's you know one of the one of the things the movie. Does ever all up to that last confrontational moment is throw there us more, more red, red herrings, herrings about, about who it might be, be. you know mm-hmm. even on even on, on James's James way, way to the, the beach, beach. Mm-hmm. uh he encounters uh, three or four other people right uh at least one of whom very well could be the person he's on his way to have the meeting yeah. with.
1: yeah yeah
0: uh, so you know again film craft is just a, it's an expertly done movie yes uh I did have. One friend, uh, I don't remember who, we were talking about Calvary, and he uh, he said it was so bleak that he couldn't get into it, um, which I don't necessarily agree with.
1: Well, I think Just that decision. your your friend, I mean, I don't know, but it's possible that if they only watch the first scene, right? Then yeah, but but directly after that. I mean, I forgot how funny this film is. You know, I mean, I watched it with a friend of mine, and we were laughing. You know, there are some seriously funny moments (laughs) in this film, and it's so. I said to him, like, this is such an Irish. I
0: mean, it's so
1: deeply Irish, but it's also deeply Catholic, right? To have this, like, the weight of suffering, and like, uh, but then this uh, sort of underlying joy. I mean, even the final scene, or not the final scene, but the, you know, the penultimate scene is so funny when they're talking about Moby Dick, like it's so right. funny. And it, oh, I right. mean, it, you just catch yourself. I mean, I love this. I mean, this just, just sort of speaks to the paradox of my, of my, it's my yeah. soul, right? Which is that I have this sort of eternal hope coupled with this immense crippling despair. Um <laughs> that's just it's just like the, this is why I get along so well in Ireland and this is like you know <laughs> uh,
0: I I think that's probably pretty common uh right now uh, mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. to at least at least attempt to have uh the hope within mm-hmm. what seems like an internal despair uh but uh but yeah I can't it's perhaps not normal yeah. to have both Though I think I might have both myself.
1: Yeah, so. yeah. Well, I mean, it, it makes sense in terms of from a from a theological perspective. Hope is a is a is a virtue, is a theological virtue that yeah. requires grace, and despair is its vice. It's it's if it's its vice. So when you give in to despair, you you're sort of giving into sin, and that's really that's really tough, I think, for us to see because we think of despair as being something that's done to us versus something that we are kind of entering into. Um, And that's uh, what I, the thing about this movie, I mean, the irony of of James saying there's been too much focus on sin and not enough on virtue is that, you know, ostensibly this film is supposed to be about a good priest, but really it's about sin. I mean, really it's a prolonged reflection on the relationship between both personal sin and systemic sin, and how right. those things permeate one another, and how they how no sin is sort of um, you know is doesn't touch the rest of the world um, and you see it in this little community you know how how the sins of per of individual people have kind of um have all of these consequences and all these ramifications and how it, how it can really destroy community and destroy humanity.
0: Right. Right. And that's, you know, I, my religious background, uh, is a uh, fairly, uh, small Protestant, mm-hmm. uh, if Protestantism is a tree, uh, there are so many organizations within Protestantism churches that are the very tips of a branch, right. uh, and uh and I grew up in one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh but uh but in so much of American Protestantism that I'm familiar with at least, uh sin is only individualized. Mm-hmm. Societal mm-hmm. sin is not even recognized mm-hmm. as a thing that exists, a thing that can exist. Uh, it's uh deeply problematic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um,
1: Absolutely. I, I think t- you know, I also i i i understand what what the priest is saying. I mean, I think in a sense that line is. I don't know. Maybe this is too much of a critique, but I don't know that that character actually would have said that. I mean, i i i I think that that was the filmmaker, or the writer, kind of indulging himself a little bit because. Yeah because when you talk about sin i mean if if anything i think this good priest understands the complexity of sin right so when he sees that character you know the character that that likes to the playboy character the one that likes to talk like he's from new york you know yeah um who's clearly hurting james doesn't see him as sinful He doesn't see the sin as, oh, this guy has sex with whoever he wants. He sees it as a brokenness, as this person is not happy, um, is not being who they truly could be, you know. And so I I think that, yeah, I don't I don't know that he actually I'm always I'm always like I bristle at that line because I don't. I want him to say something else. I mean, I think that he could say there's too much talk about sin and something, but virtue to me, sin and virtue are not the, I don't expect the word virtues there. I expect something else. I expect love or, um, right. forgiveness or something, you know, it doesn't, I don't know. It's, it's, a.
0: no, it, I understand. It
1: hits me weird yeah. that line.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's obviously you know as you've already said that the there there, sp- sin and virtue are mm-hmm. the are the opposites but uh but within the way theology is practiced mm-hmm. within the way the church functions uh, a a uh, a focus on sin is not the opposite of a focus on virtue mm-hmm. as much as it is the opposite of, of a focus on grace
1: mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. yeah yeah and I guess I mean I I, mean, I of course there's a sense in which virtue and sin are opposites, um, right. but I don't I I don't know I don't I don't see the where that particular line fits into what's coming right. um, because I understand virtue as a sort of prolonged habit. Of life, and I and maybe you know maybe his sort of self sacrifice um, is could be understood primarily in terms of virtue, but I don't know. I I just it's always that line always sticks out to me, and maybe maybe it's right. I don't know.
0: Yeah, um, maybe the movie's not perfect.
1: <laughs> but how dare you how dare I? <laughs> well that's an interesting point though because i was noticing this time around that the film only works i mean this sort of meditation on a good priest only works if he's not perfect right so right. he does say things i mean besides the obvious imperfection of um the alcoholism and like you know his temper and things like that. Right, right. There are moments where he doesn't really say the right thing. You know, he doesn't really, he's not, he's not a perfect priest. He's just happens. To, he's just a good priest, you know? Right. Right. Um, so there, I think they, they did a really nice job writing him, writing lines for him and writing, writing imperfections into his character that are really subtle, um, but really right. effective.
0: And I think that one of the places that hits me is in his final his final conversation with uh, Michael Fitzgerald, Dylan Moran's character, <clears throat> where he says, you know, I have—this guy's just confessed his suicidal thoughts and his utter despair, uh, which he has been wearing on his sleeve the entire time, but he has come to terms enough with it to actually confess it.
1: Now. Right, right.
0: And the father's response is— We'll talk about this later. I have a meeting right now. Yeah. And the promise of a hope of a future conversation that he's got a pretty good idea isn't going to happen. Yeah. The meeting he's about to have is a meeting with death. Oh, uh,
1: although, you know, it's interesting because I, there's a way to read him as a Christ figure, right? Which is like he gives it. He knows he's going to his death. I mean, he has this temptation to leave for Dublin. He comes back. Um right. as I watched it this time, I was thinking when I was watching that, the scene with the, with the the rich guy, I was thinking, you know, maybe he, maybe there's some hubris here. Maybe there is the sense in which he thinks that he can talk Jack out of killing him. Maybe. Um, Maybe he's more surprised that he's actually going to, you know, I, I I wondered this time, like, I think there's a, I think there's ambiguity here.
0: Right. And that, and his promise to go meet this man after afterward mm-hmm. is certainly a sign of that and a sign that he still hasn't so much of this film is structured as him going through the stages of grief. Right. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and in yep. that moment is a step back. We, he seems to have already been in acceptance, mm-hmm. but, but he's, he's, he's suddenly, he's not accepting it yet mm-hmm.
1: because mm-hmm. he's, he's suggesting,
0: suggesting that there is something, something
1: beyond. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Uh and to that point, you know, through through the conversation with Jack, uh, until until Jack actually pulls the trigger, I don't I don't think that Father believes that he's going to.
1: Mm-hmm. That's what and I mean. I, yeah, I mean, there's a, yeah. and I I don't know if that's just human nature or, I don't know, a sort of overconfidence in his to. own pastoral. Yeah, yeah. Um. But I, yeah, I mean, I, and I'm
0: always... I Go ahead. You could be right. that a, It's hope, but it is hubristic because mm-hmm. he is... he is. But it's perhaps a, a hope for a miracle too, uh, though, though there is nothing within this, what he said up to that point to imply that he believes God will miraculously get him out of the situation.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always just so touched by i mean this this time watching this is the this is the first time i've watched it since the pennsylvania report Mm -hmm. and the pennsylvania report was the first time that i actually read documents and they they do make me cry Yeah. yeah and so i was i mean i just had a different experience this time of I think there's a, there's such a poignant, that poignant line about like, you cried when your dog died. Did you cry when you read the court, you know, the reports of the abused children and it's so convicting, right? Because I mean, as viewers, dogs dying on screen are it's just so jarring, but you know, why, why don't we feel the same or more when it's human beings? Um, but this time I, I wanted to like say like, yeah, <laughs> I did cry, you know, it's right, like, right. you know, so that's, that's one of the incredible things about film in general. But this one in particular is the way in which, because we're still so mired in the context of its subject, as if, if you're in, if you're in the Catholic Church, it will always, it will change, you know, as things, as more things come out, as bishops say or don't say certain things in response you know the film is going to read differently for for us um and that's i mean that's just really cool and also very sad i guess if you think about it
0: oh certainly well another one reason i i brought up the my protestant background and Mm -hmm. and the way the way sin is individualized uh so much Mm -hmm. is that you know sex abuse scandals are happening in protestant uh face too, Yeah. Uh in Protestant denominations. And you know, uh we hinted at this in conversation, uh, talking about the village a couple months ago, uh, with someone who uh had a very similar upbringing to mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but frequently that within you know, within Protestantism when uh child sex abuse or, or any sort of sex abuse or abuse of power uh, from the ministers uh, is discovered. Mm-hmm. It is framed as an individualistic sin mm-hmm. uh, and not uh, not acknowledged as being an inevitable result of the power structures, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and the power structures themselves are part of that framework that leads to the sin and if it is inevitable that that framework leads to someone committing a sin, that framework deserves to be torn down, yeah, uh, to be changed.
1: Right. Well, there's a there's good and bad to this, right? Because if if it's understood as a failing of a of an individual and not of a larger system, um, the I mean, you're right. The bad thing is that that obscures the ways in which structures of power are actually perpetuating or causing the sin Mm -hmm. um but ecclesially this makes sense right so this is why even though the percentages are about the same for protestants and catholics i think that the the reason why the catholic sex abuse crisis is what it is is because of ecclesiology because because a priest i mean this is what this film is so good at showing you the priest and it's not even just symbolic it's like It's deeper than that. A priest is not just a personality that you can either sort of give or take. It's like, I actually need him to, uh, for lack of a better term, enjoy participation in Holy Mother Church, right? So I cannot give myself the Eucharist. I have to rely on him to say Mass. And so... The, the beauty of that is that any given priest is—there's a sort of anonymity there, or sort of um, uh, a pr- any particular priest. Uh, we have less of a cult of personality, I think, in Catholicism. Right. But the, the difficulty is that once you build up—once you have the ecclesiology of the church as prime, primary mediation between you and God, when the church fails— or when people sort of within that structure fail, the 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 temptation for despair and the temptation to absolutely abandon your faith altogether is so much greater, right? Um, because of that strong ecclesiology, I think that this is why it's such a scandal. I mean, this is why the sex abuse crisis has a valence in the Catholic Church that it doesn't for, let's say, um, daycare workers and elementary school teachers who also are pedophiles or yeah. you know there's a similar thing there where like well we've entrusted you with our children there's an extra layer of sort of theological weight that absolutely destroys people's faith um right. and actually their dis- the destruction of their faith is actually a res- is a um acknowledgement of the the role of the church in mediating my relationship to god because if that's true that's why my faith is now gone. You know what I'm saying?
0: Right. right. I, I understand, understand what, what you're saying. saying. I, I would say I think there is an unacknowledged ecclesiology of certain sects of Protestantism, mm-hmm. uh, where even while uh, they confess with their lips that uh, there is nothing between the individual and God, mm-hmm. uh, that that the broader theology of the church establishes that that church is the only way yeah. to god
1: yeah
0: uh and therefore when that structure fails you know right uh, search uh, search the term ex-evangelical on twitter and you'll see uh yes see thousands right. thousands of people talking about it. uh the failure of an individual congregation mm-hmm, uh mm-hmm. and an individual pastor leading to the failure of uh of their own faith because of the amount of pressure that is built up within within the understanding of that church as the singular body of Christianity. Absolutely. Absolutely. So many, so many groups like that view anyone else as unchristian.
1: Right. Right. I just wonder, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this is one of the things that I try to convey to students when I teach the reformation is the way in which this is a sort of, that does protest too much kind of thing, right? Where it's like, <laughs> yes, there are mediating structures. You're using mediating structures to say that there aren't mediating. Anyway, um, yeah. but I do wonder, I, I do think that there is a real difference here um, that me as a as a Catholic living in New York, having grown up in Virginia, never living in Pennsylvania, reading the Pennsylvania report, I'm scandalized as a Catholic. Right. Having, I mean, I, I have really dear Certainly. friends whose, whose pastors appeared in that report, but I don't know any of those people. But I still, you know, there's a sort of universe, like the, the, the thing that makes Catholicism great is its universality, and that's also the thing that can, can actually bring right. it tumbling down.
0: Right, and, you know, what got us on this, talking about the individuality, if a Southern Baptist minister in Tennessee right. goes to prison for child abuse, Southern Baptists in California think well, that's not my church.
1: Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
0: And that's true in a lot of, a lot of the you know, power structures as well.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Protestant mm-hmm. Um,
0: um, particularly Baptists and Baptist leaning sort of denominations, Anabaptists in a lot of ways too, that don't have a central hierarchy.
1: Mm-hmm, they just mm-hmm.
0: have, uh, you know, maybe a, uh, an agreed upon governing body, uh, but that governing body doesn't even necessarily have any authority over uh, local congregations.
1: Yeah, and it's it's interesting the role of digital culture in this. If I could, I mean, it's yeah. it's what the, there are ways in which digital culture, in the way that it uh, bridges bridges space, can actually facilitate the kind of little c catholicity that the church has always said that it has. So what I mean by that is that I can actually be in Tennessee or, you know, in, in California and those churches could have some sort of relationship, um, to one another such that I do feel the scandal, the weight of scandal across that space. But by the same time, I think that, that instead of, instead of really cultivating a sense of universality or sort of Catholicity among churches, it actually maybe feeds that cult of personality thing. Right. So I follow particular preachers or Christian Instagrammers and it's, it's their scandal that affects me, not the sort of ecclesial thing. And that goes back to what you were saying about individualizing sin again, I think.
0: Right. Right. And I, there's that hope Mm -hmm. that you put into those structures, into, Mm -hmm. into individuals. Uh, can just as, just as badly uh, affect someone's faith. Absolutely, right?
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. When a big-name minister uh, falls, a lot of people fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, Protestantism has a certainly, certainly has a history of that, too. Uh, yeah. The Great Disappointment uh, is a, a prime 19th century example of yeah. Uh, yeah. hundreds of thousands of people following one guy's ideas, and when those ideas didn't pan out, the day mm-hmm. he said they would, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like a half dozen different Protestant denominations started out of that group.
1: Yeah, it's uh, interesting, you know, because I, I now I'm thinking more about the differences here. I think that, I mean, you could kind of trace that trajectory from the 19th century up until today about these sort of falls of the Protestant minister, you know. And I think that there is, I mean, the there are exceptions to this in Catholicism, but for the most part the priests that in as far as i can tell the the majority of priests in these documents the ones that have been abusers for all these years are not charismatic they're not there's no cult of personality right. there might be in a local but they but they're not really known outside of their local parishes and so the the scandal is not in relationship to their good preaching or their read of scripture or their ability to convert people, but it's by virtue of their office itself, right? By virtue of their ordination. And so there, I think you start to see some of the, like I said, the ecclesial differences, um, which is again, good and bad, because if that's the case, if it's about ecclesial office, that's where you get the scene in Calvary of that amazing scene where father James is on the other side of the street with a little girl and they're having this conversation. And then her father comes and says, like, get in the car. What were you saying to her? Because he, by virtue of the fact that he's wearing this cassock is the worst fear of Catholic parents, um, which is, is just heartbreaking. Um, You know, especially, I mean, especially the fact that he's also a father, you know, of a little girl, it's like, this is, he would, you know, He would never hurt her, but we don't know anymore. Right. So
0: completely fair point. Uh, You're absolutely right.
1: Again, you know, this time I was a few things that stuck out to me. um, The humor of it really stuck out to me this time. I think because I've been watching it in more of a pedagogical perspective, I've been looking at it in terms of what to bring out for students Right, I'd right. sort of overlook the humor, but um, it really is just... A, I mean, even the, the description on Amazon calls it a dark comic, dark, something dark, darkly comic or something. And I think that they probably shouldn't write that on there, but it's true. Yeah. I mean, it is true that it has this sort of comedy behind it, um, which I think is really important. I think that would have read really inauthentic to Irish audiences if it didn't have that um the comedy right. to it you know um and the the other priest the the sort of junior pastor is being um part of this you know the, he's he's really a comic character he's the he's the flattest of the characters yeah, um yes. but he's also really important because he represents i think what you were talking about in terms of the impotence of the church you know there's a there are ways in which the church can only do so much, um, and and individual pastors can only do so much. But there's also a kind of willful ignorance, um, or what, it, what did James say? Like a lack of integrity, um, mm-hmm. and that's that's true. You know, I think that that priest embodies maybe in a sort of too. He's a caricature, but he really embodies this sort of head in the sand. Um, approach. I mean, he doesn't want to kind of come down on sides of anything, you know, he's historic. He doesn't know his history. He doesn't really know his theology. He obviously is not a pastor. Um, He's, I think it's really telling that James says that he should have been an accountant because he's an administrator, you know, and that's what, unfortunately, I think a lot of, a lot of church leadership has been for a very long time.
0: Right. There is a a solid solid argument argument to say that uh, the, hierarchy of the church encourages mm-hmm. a lot of that mm-hmm. too.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You need to have the administrators in order to keep things functioning. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. But
0: but those administrators should not uh should not be in the position that man was in.
1: Right. Uh, well, and then and then the bishop is an interesting character in this too. So he appears twice only twice, right? He appears
0: I believe so, yes. Yeah,
1: he's having tea the first time and then he's like smelling roses the second time. Right. Um, in his sort of Episcopal castle or something, you know.
0: Right. He's performing the capacities of his office right. uh, while clearly distracted both times.
1: Yeah, like, uh, as yeah.
0: He, as he As he says, oh, well, then you should go to the police because it's not covered by the seal of confession right. because It wasn't confessing, Right. He's literally licking his fingers.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Like, and he doesn't seem like a bad guy. He just no. seems like apathetic or something. Right. Um I will say that I mean I don't I don't know what the filmmakers if they knew about this but the Irish Church I think has been a little bit better liturgically in responding to the um, sex abuse crisis. So at least in Dublin there was a really concerted effort to do masses of repentance, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's. I don't. I don't know that the filmmakers knew about that, and I don't. I don't know the timeline, but that's how I read the the choice that James makes at the end to to get off the plane, right? To not go right. to Dublin, um, was you know we can. It's it's within our rights to not take responsibility for this because I'm not the priest that abused anyone. But what would it look like to to undergo an act of humility? Um, and that's what I think he's doing on the beach, which is why I say that he's not necessarily convinced that he's going to die, right. but he's he is willing to meet someone. I mean, think about the, the juxtaposition or the or the contrast between the confessional and the beach, right? I mean, you can't right. get a starker contrast than that. Right. Um
0: Darn on the beach is. right yeah. the lighting yeah
1: exactly yeah. Um, and there's a there's a witness right it's being recorded right. because um, the little boy is also painting right. it and right I mean it's just um, so so yeah I think that he is is trying to perform an act of humility where where it needs to be you know right. um, you
0: know in that his coming back mm-hmm. if if this is a Christ allegory. Yeah, you know that is that is I suppose Gethse- Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. I can't say mm-hmm. the Garden. I can't say that word Gethsemane. Right now. Gethsemane. Yeah. Gethsemane. I still can Uh but uh but his almost leaving and then coming back mm-hmm. uh is is Jonah mm-hmm. uh more than anything there and I think that 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 after that after his return, uh, we get the uh, we get the conversation about Moby Dick, that is itself, <laughs> uh, by extension, a conversation about Jonah. Yeah. In as much, nice. In as much as Jonah informs Moby Dick, uh, so in to an extent, it is him deciding to face this fate. Mm-hmm. But if he is seeing if he is seeing it as himself as as a Jonah in this situation. Uh, much to Jonah's chagrin in the story, things work out pretty positively Mm -hmm. in the end of Jonah. Mm -hmm. uh, Even though he doesn't want it to. Whereas here uh, James obviously wants the most positive end and believes up until the moment that he's going to get a more positive end. Mm -hmm. When he goes in hoping that uh, God will change hearts,
1: maybe. Yeah, Yeah. I wonder. I mean, because the scene with, with his former student, the serial killer. Yeah you know this is not a sister helen prejean like right moment i mean he's really snarky to this kid he he seems to only be like there out of obligation in some way you know i mean he right. he narrates it a little bit differently later at the bar, at the bar but when he's there he's just like you're not sorry you don't you know um, and so I, I, I do wonder about his own sense of, of hope, you know, um, and, and maybe there's a little bit of, you know, mother Teresa, dark night of the soul kind of thing happening here where he just doesn't, I think what, what's so troubling when you watch this film as a, as a believer is the people around him are, are so hurtful because I think those of us who are believers it's not like we haven't had these thoughts before. It's not like we're ignoring them, you know. Um but it's it's sort of faith in 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 the face of this of this darkness, you know. And right. he tries to do this again and again. I don't know that he I don't know what he's thinking at the end. I don't think we're supposed to know, but I I think my best read of it now on this particular watching is that He sees in this, in the midst of this scandal, which he doesn't say anything about really, you know, I mean, he doesn't have any, the one priest makes comments about, to me, it seems like raking up the past. James doesn't say anything about that. Um, But he sees that in this particular moment, this is something that he can do as a priest to show a sense of openness, a willingness to humble himself Right. Um, and that's, I think that's all. Maybe he has in in his mind. You know, maybe he's a lot more simple than than I want him to be. I don't know.
0: I don't know. Simple's an interesting word too <laughs> to choose mm-hmm. because now my mind's on on The Idiot and, mm-hmm. and the uh, the uh, definition of simple mm-hmm. as uh, as slow and and dim witted. Uh, but the idiot's whole thing is the idea that anyone who tries to uh, live out the teachings of Christ in the modern era is a fool. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh,
1: And the town certainly thinks that he is, right? I mean, there's a sense in which they respect him or they let him around because he's a priest and they're Catholic and blah, blah, blah. But, uh, you know, I, I do think that most people... In the world that we live in, you and I, and uh, the society in which we live, think that we're a bit foolish, right. um, and I think that it comes out in this film in sort of more more vehement ways. Um, but yeah, I I think that he I and I don't when I say simple, I think that he he has like a couple of like things that he believes in. And that's what he goes with, you know, he believes, I think, in love and forgiveness,
0: right. but
1: also that life is not kittens and sunshine. And that's right. kind of it. <laughs> um, right. I think, yeah. I, think,
0: I think in that regard of his conversation with Milo about joining the army mm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: of, you know, he says there's, there's no asterisk,
1: mm-hmm.
0: thou shalt not kill.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. Milo
0: says, well, what about self-defense? He says... Well, that's more complicated but and <laughs> then just <laughs> ignores it
1: yep exactly uh, exactly
0: and moves on and Milo Milo in his own regard is is simple uh, but uh uh he's also uh unpersuaded mm-hmm. by the arguments
1: mm-hmm. given. yep,
0: uh, you know we still see him signing up at the end of the film,
1: yeah but it's interesting yeah. because now that I think about it he's he does sign up but he sees James driving to Dublin. He sees him driving to the airport. Yeah, yeah. So if, if we think about, I mean, really, the the beauty of this film is the last scene, right, where you see what I'm going to assume is Fiona extending some sort of love to right. the right. person who murdered her father, probably because that's how she, that's the witness that she received from him. If we sort of, if the parallel or sort of the the flip side of that is that milo might have assumed that he was running off you know to sort of abandon the town um to get away from all of the mess you know maybe that's what he saw you know he's like well this guy doesn't really care about the town the church is burned down and now he's done um i don't know maybe i'm reading too much into that but i don't know if you remember that when he's driving in his convertible milo comes up on side of him uh and sees him driving away so yeah.
0: And uh in, in such a well crafted movie elsewise, mm-hmm. what else could that scene mean?
1: Right, right, <laughs> right. yeah. So I don't think it's incidental. Um right. And that's such an interesting character too.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's everyone is so interesting here. Yeah. In that they are both uh emblematic. Mm-hmm. Of types of people, without mm-hmm. being caricatures of those types of people
1: right mm-hmm. and and what's so great about it is they're self effacing in their in what they represent you know i mean the um the doctor he's like, yeah, you know the atheistic doctor it's there's only a few good lines, and then the rest right. of it is gallows humor and right i mean it's like right. they're so self aware and this is what i what i I try to impress upon people when I talk about my own faith or my own profession is like, when someone tells me that they don't believe, or that they're, you know, they're frustrated, or they have these antagonisms with the church, I never take it as something that's simple. You know, I never, I never assume that it's just because they don't want to think about it. I mean, and maybe it is the case that for some people, it's just that they're too lazy to believe in God or something. But I try, at least in my classroom, to receive those those things as authentic, sincere experiences, usually of, of some place of pain. Um, my students who have never been exposed to faith—that's something different. But the ones who have had some exposure to religion and then who have decided against it—usually there's some pain there. And I think right. that I think that it's. I mean, this is we read an essay by Thomas Merton where he talks about this, where his, as the whole essay is just him apologizing. He's like, I just, I'm just sorry for all of the shit that Christians have done. Um, not just, you know, the sort of historical things, but anytime anybody has been unloving towards you, you know, I'm just, I'm not trying to convince you of anything except that I'm sorry for that. You know,
0: I think uh, I'm sorry. The church has hurt you has mm-hmm. in ways become a, a shorthand of not dealing with actual pain as well though. Mm-hmm.
1: You know? Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Well, one, and
0: I'm, I, one I'm sure I've used in the past too. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't,
1: I don't think I even really say it that way. I, I, yeah. I try to, when I teach, when we, when we get into this, which is not that often, but like, we'll get into, um, LGBTQ stuff and, and my students will hopefully, usually they're at a place where they i say to them like you are more than welcome to ask me how I'm still a part of a church that doesn't recognize the full rights of of all people you know like I really I'm really upfront with them about the hypocrisy of it yeah but I also try to get them to see that I think that it, in this particular culture we're sort of' we're, we're kind of obsessed with pure with pure pureness. you know we're obsessed we're obsessed with ideological purity yeah, and yeah. and nobody is ideologically pure and and humanity is complex and that's what i love about the self-effacing those self-effacing characters is that they're just like yeah i suck you know <laughs> and right. i think that's why father james continues to talk to them you know he's just like yeah they're human beings and they realize their own fallenness which is which is a lot more to that that's more than than most people i think have gotten to at this point, you know, to acknowledge that you're broken.
0: Well, um, sort of in your defense on that as well, you know, what we've already talked about ecclesiology wise Mm -hmm. with, uh, when you have a problem with Catholicism, uh, you've got to, your choices are leave the church, uh, give up your faith or change it. Yeah. from the inside. Uh, you know, if, uh, if a Protestant has a disagreement like that, right. uh, you know, the United Methodist church this week, uh, yeah, is yeah. splitting into two separate denominations, yeah. uh, over, over that exact issue. Right. Uh, right. Affirmation. Right. Uh, you know, so they, uh, they have sort of the choice to leave yeah. en masse. Yeah. And still have the structures of their faith. Right. Whereas uh, your choice would be to leave and not have the structures of your faith. Which is why so many ex Catholics become uh Episcopalians, I think. Um, well, yeah, that's it's, right. It's that's close right. enough. <laughs> right.
1: But I think I, I think again, I mean, if we could think about the context here. Um, the difference, the sort of Irish context. Right. And to think about what it means to leave Catholicism. And I have a lot of friends who are struggling with this right now because of where the church is.
0: And there's a social aspect.
1: Well, it's, and it's more than social. I mean, it's it's like an identity crisis, you know? So yeah. I, I always say to people, like, yeah, I would leave Catholicism, but I don't know who I would be. Like, I am. it's so deeply a part of who I am mm. that I don't even know. So that's what's so interesting about this film is, like, why do all these people give a shit, right? Like, right. just leave, Just stop talking to the priest, you know? Like, Why
0: but, do we see so many of these characters take communion in the first two minutes mm-hmm. of this movie?
1: But even the ones that don't, like, why do they give them such a hard time? It's like, just leave him right. alone, you know? Right. But the fact is that they, they will always feel connected. It's not something that you slough off so easily. You will always feel connected to it. I mean, I guess there are Catholics who leave and don't look back, but I know very few. And this is why people describe themselves as... I used to be Catholic and now I'm not, or I'm a lapsed Catholic. There's all of these like euphemisms for talking about how we carry around this weight um, or, you know, a weight in sort of a negative term, but also this sort of part of your identity. You're never going to sort of let, let go of it. Um, And I think that's, that's also the case. I think for Protestant traditions, I think it's a little more, uh, ingrained in some ways for um for catholics um but it's a it just goes back to the sort of falseness of this american ideal of choice you know it's just like right. i can just choose to be something else it's like well i guess so but you're 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 also you know constructed by these things and you can't just easily let them go and pretend like they they didn't make you who you are
0: yeah i think of conversations i've had in the past of uh friends in uh, Protestant seminaries in uh, uh, denominations that don't support uh, female clergy, who have women in their seminary classes, and mm-hmm. you know, I've had someone say, "Why, why go to a seminary in a denomination you can't even preach in? Yeah. Why not? Why not just go to another?" seminary join another denomination and the answer is because that's the denomination they were brought up in
1: right it's what they
0: know that's what they want to believe yeah they just have a problem with one specific aspect of it yeah uh,
1: yeah
0: and they like they would rather work to change that aspect than to give up everything
1: yeah right yeah I mean and I even i I think your activist impulse is right in terms of trying to change it but I also I try to. I say this to a lot of sort of older Catholic feminists, like I, it is not my hill to die on to get women ordained in Catholicism, right. like I'm just not I'm just not going to do it yes I think it's unjust, yes I think women should be ordained, but I'm not going to, it's just not my thing like I'm not going to, you know, so so even, so what do you do with that? I mean I think that upsets my students too, you know, so it's like there's another, there's got to be another option there of taking the whole taking the church and all of her imperfection, which is what Pope Francis right. talked about at Christmas, um which is convicting I mean it's really hard, it's really really hard
0: right right holding holding those imperfections is part of faith too yeah absolutely and holding the mysteries and holding the things that you can't articulate, not just because they're bigger than you, but mm-hmm. because they're so much a part of you mm-hmm. that you can't.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, and they are you. You owe your ability to reject the tradition. You owe that ability to think through that to the tradition. The tradition formed you to think about these things in a particular way, and so it's right. really strange to then, you know. I mean, yeah.
0: No, that reminds me of a of another conversation I had a while back of uh, interpretations of uh, Matthew ten thirty four moving forward you know i, I Jesus saying uh, that I didn't come to bring peace, I came mm-hmm. with a sword mm-hmm. uh, to divide father and son and mother and daughter and uh, you know, part of that and part of part of what I see in my own faith journey is i I take what was ingrained with me by my parents mm-hmm. and I take that into a faith. That they don't understand—that mm-hmm. is beyond what they understood faith to be,
1: Yeah. right? Yeah.
0: And in many ways, that does—that separates me from them, and in some cases, very emotionally violently mm-hmm. separates them
1: mm-hmm. me from them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I just think that this is one of the most underrated films of all time. Like, I just—I'm right. always right. shocked that people haven't seen it because I think it's right. just so visually stunning. I think that it's it's relevant, and I think that it's just a profound meditation. You know, you and I might talk about it as a meditation on virtue and sin and forgiveness and things like that, but it's just a meditation on human nature. Right. And I think that if, if nothing else, to to recognize the brokenness of people Right. and to be able to see in someone else's brokenness, my own brokenness, and be able to meet them there. Um, you know, I think that that's what makes it, in my opinion, such a beautiful film.
0: It is, uh, it is a wonderful and beautiful film, uh, emotionally and visually,
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh,
0: very beautiful film. Um, that's, uh, On my other podcast on the Criterion Films, uh, one thing we frequently say is it's very easy to make a beautiful film when you're pointing the camera at beautiful scenery. Uh, But but I think Calvary uh, takes Mm it a step beyond that, too.
1: It does. (laughs) I mean, the lighting is really stunning. Um, It's really just... Just powerful. It really hits you. Um,
0: well, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for uh, letting me. This was great. Anytime.
0: Uh, before I let you go, is there anything you wanna you wanna plug?
1: My book is coming out soon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, What's your book? I just got a, an email from my editor, so it should be out in the next couple of months. It's my dissertation. It's been coming out forever, um, <laughs> but it's it's called Virtual Communion, and it's uh, a theology of the internet. So it's it has right. a lot of what we were just talking about. And the very beginning about um uh, mediation and particularly Catholic notions of sacramentality and ecclesiology. So um yeah, that's that's on its way. So I guess that's Excellent. what I would plug. I don't know.
0: Wow! <laughs> yeah. Wow! Well, yeah. Sounds like a good thing to plug. I'll. Uh, I look forward to reading oh, it. Oh, so. thank
1: you. That's very kind. I don't know if anyone will read it, but we'll see. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, uh, I'll try, but not being Catholic, like I'm sure most of it will go over my nah, head.
1: Nah, so. you'll be fine. <laughs> right.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. I am, as always, Adam Glass. With me this time, Catherine Schmidt, Doctor Catherine Schmidt, uh, talking about Calvary from
1: 2014. Thanks, Adam. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to Cinema Credo, Conversations on Film and Faith. I'm your host and writer, Adam Bless. Film clips this week are used under fair use. Thank you to Steve Richter for the use of our theme song, Madrasita, off of his album, Beloved. Check out his work at steverichter.com. That's S-T-E-E-V, R-I-C-H-T-E-R.com. <laughs>